0: Well, yesterday we were um, driving past Sydney Airport on our way back from the Royal National Park where we'd been going for a walk. And one of my sons said, wow, look at the size of that aeroplane. And it was a big aeroplane. It was an A380, one of the biggest out there. Um, I looked it up later, they're 24 metres high. That's half the size of an Olympic swimming pool. It's 72 metres long, but even wider in wingspan, 80 metres. They're big planes, they can carry 560 tonnes. And as you look at it just sitting there on on the tarmac, you think, no way, that could never get off the ground. But when the engines get going, when it reaches almost 300 kilometres an hour with air moving across its wings, that impossibly heavy object just wants to get off the ground. Last week, Paul gave us a great sense of the heavy sin problem that humans have and the load of our sin that seems so impossible to deal with. By ourselves, Remember the sense of weight Paul spoke of when he said, I don't even understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. In chapter 7, verse 15, or in 724, the conclusion, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Um, Paul here sure goes deeper than the coffee cup uh, did in Coles, in Birkenhead Point, where I, I bought a coffee last week trying to cheer us all up with its pop psychology. Um, I take it it's a good motive. It perhaps is helpful to some people, but it had there written, the quality of your thinking determines the quality of your life. The quality of your thinking determines the quality of your life, and perhaps a bit of caffeine as well helps. You can get off the ground by lifting your thoughts seem to be the message on my cup. Better thinking... I think, is reaching for something good. There's something to be said for what it's saying, but it's nowhere near enough when you listen to the depth of a problem Paul expresses. A positive attitude about a godless life is still ultimately foolish and hoping all will be well while building a house on sand. Our troubled and hurting world seems unaware of what God makes clear, that our problem is not fundamentally a problem of perception of attitude or the quality of our thinking our greatest need is not more resilience or inner strength the great problem God says is our sin where our sin leaves us before our Creator and our judge what sin leads to in human relationships think of the workplace and the dysfunction that can be there or our households and families where sin ruins good relationships And even the complicated mess sin creates within ourselves. And as we age, we think the older I get, the more complex and and troubled I am. Who will rescue us then from this body of death? Who will rescue us from sin's grip? How does God lift what could never lift itself? Well, point one, if you're following in your outlines, there's no condemnation now, I dread. We're free to live in verses one to two. Therefore, Paul writes, there is now No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Much more than a sentiment to lift your day, this verse is a powerful truth about you. This is the wind over your wings that God is sending. Beginning with therefore, these verses sum up, I think, at least all of chapters 3 to 7, but perhaps all of 1 to 7 so far and speak of what God has done for Christians. This great chapter, Romans 8, is written for our assurance as God's people. Now, many Christians consider the book of Romans the greatest book in all of the Bible and therefore the greatest book in, in, in the world. And chapter 8 is considered often the greatest chapter within the greatest book. Now, I don't think it's a competition which is the greatest book in the Bible, but we're going to spend, spend four very happy weeks in the book of Romans in, in chapter 8. And it begins by crying here, there's no condemnation and it will conclude by saying there's no separation. Nothing can separate you now from God's love. Therefore, verse 1, there is now no condemnation. Now condemnation, I take it, what is that? It's, it's the guilty verdict, but it's, it's more than the verdict. It's also the consequences of the verdict. And so if you think of a guilty man condemned with a life sentence in prison, this person has been judged guilty, but is also in a condemned state. The truth is, for Christians, God is saying here, You're not in my bad books. You're not in my bad books. Life and vindication, not death and condemnation, await you. No and now combine. These two words combine to say there is now no condemnation. Meaning that something has changed in history for the world, something has changed for those, verse 1, who are in Christ Jesus. Now, people can be part of a team, part of a family, part of a club, part of a nation. Christians, Paul says, fundamentally, are those who are in Christ. Now, what does that mean? Well, the scholar William Dumbrell says, in Christ in Romans here means that we are incorporated by the Spirit into the sphere of power and authority of Jesus, Israel's risen Messiah. We're incorporated by the Spirit into the sphere of power and authority of Israel's risen Messiah. Put much more simply, we're his. We belong to the King, and he's not going to let us go. We, the ordinary garden-variety Christian, are spiritually bound, joined, united, Our lives and destinies forever joined to the risen Lord Jesus who's gone ahead of us. We are blood brothers and sisters. We're reborn kindred spirits because his spirit is now in us. We're co heirs. We're adopted family members. We're friends with God forever. Um, The hymn combines these two truths really well, and can it be? The lack of condemnation on the one hand, with our tight union with Christ on the other. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. The quality of my thinking determines my life. That just doesn't cut it. Who Jesus is, what he's done for me. This determines the quality of my life as I join with him. The penalty and the power of sin is overwhelmed on behalf of an otherwise wretched and condemned man. Bold we, Christ's brothers and sisters, approach his eternal throne because there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. If you're not sure about that, that Christianity Explained course would be a great time to explore that. Are you in Christ Jesus? While my mother and father in law were away for a week, just in this last week, they offered me the use of their apartment so that I could um, just have a change of setting if I wanted it. So I, I would work there a little bit this week. I had a key. I used their desk and their kettle. I opened a packet of biscuits. I even sent a note to my father in law saying I was enjoying eating his ice cream. That's what family do, right? And my kids at home do the same thing. God calls us family. And at the very least, he wants us to know there's no condemnation. There's no barrier between him and us. We're not in a condemned state with our Father in heaven. God wants that to be very clear so the relationship can can thrive. John Bunyan, the author of the Christian classic Pilgrim's Progress, took years to accept this amazing truth. He grew up a very wayward boy. You wouldn't think so. He's now famous all around the Christian world for his writing But then he he describes his young adult life as, as just participating in vile sins. And so it took him about five years wrestling with God, trying to believe that there can be no condemnation for him in light of his sin and his past, torn up by the way he lived and treated God. And so it took five years for him to be convinced there's no condemnation for him. God wants us to know where we stand with him because it changes our lives when we do. In what way does it change our life, you might ask? Well, I wonder what sins might come to your mind from your past. Mistakes, regrets, bad habits, shame for what you've done, feeling condemned or distant from God from what you've done or perhaps what others have done to you. Some of us may have been told we're not good enough by family members for years and we just can't shake it. And so we struggle to think God would ever accept us the way we are. Some of us can't forgive ourselves, let alone expect God to say that it's all good between him and us. I think of my own story. There was a boy in my primary school and he'd get hassled by other boys, and sometimes I was part of that to my shame. Uh, As a young man, he committed suicide. And I think, where was I? Why didn't I separate myself more from, from my friends? Whatever your story, now God wants you to know. If you are in Christ Jesus, God delights in you. You have free access to him and his house, and his presence forever. To what degree have you got your head around the fact that you are an uncondemnable man, an uncondemnable woman, a saint whose place in heaven is already sure, one who belongs more truly in heaven than here, a citizen of heaven with your bags packed. Christians, we're like the immoral woman who found relief from Jesus. We may condemn ourselves Others may have stones ready to throw at us. But Jesus silences our enemies when he steps into our space and says to us as he did to her, Are there any here left to condemn you? Neither do I condemn you. Now go your way and sin no more. We live in a world that loves to cancel and expose sinners so hypocritically. The one whose verdict counts most, the one who knows our darkest secrets. He is the one who says, now, to you tonight, no condemnation. Hear it through my voice box, through my lips. This is God's message to you through his word. Your life as a Christian has no doubt been patchy at best. I know because all Christians live that way. And yet Jesus would address you as he did, his broken apostle Peter, three times denying Jesus when Jesus could have used his love and support most. Three times, Peter, I affirm, I invite you to affirm your love for me. Three times I charge you to get on with ministry and kingdom work, knowing all is forgiven. And dear Peter, I hold none of it against you. That's why I take it, Jesus had that encounter with Peter before he was raised, ascended. There is, of course, all kind of sin and shame in our past. Around this room, I've got no idea what that is, but I'm sure it's here. No condemnation is God's word to the room. In our past, I take it there would have been bullying, harassment, unkind words, You may have lied a hundred times and manipulated your husband, wife, family members. You may have been a half-hearted spouse or parent or child, a lousy sibling to your family members. You may have wasted countless hours of your life pursuing more money, more wealth, a name for yourself, and so robbed God continually of the glory he deserves from you and through your labor. You may not have even yet sensed the depth of your pride and its daily effects. I'm sure that's the case. We don't sense the depth of our pride and its effects. But even still, friend of Jesus, God says no condemnation for the sin you're aware of and even for the sin you're not aware of. It's incredible. You are uncondemnable. At DPC, dead men walking have become the immortal walking, saved, freed, forgiven. When I was a teenager playing cricket and one of my poor teammates developed a reputation for dropping catches. And cricketers have a saying that catches win matches. And so after we'd lose a game, attention would sometimes go to the poor boy who would dropped the catches. Um, He had the nickname Teflon on our team, named after the frying pans that came out at the time. Um, because nothing sticks. None of the catches would stick in his hands. Um, here, each of us, and the world can be cruel, can't it? Each of us could be called Teflon. But this time because of remarkable blessing. Nothing sticks to us. Blessed is the one against whom the Lord does not count their sin. Our sin doesn't stick. It's a wonderful scandal. Wretches, God calls saints. Who will rescue you from this body of death? He's done it. We've been rescued, irreversibly rescued. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 2, because through Christ Jesus, there his name is prominent again, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. What does that mean, that the law of the Spirit who gives life? I take it Paul is comparing Moses' law in the Old Testament with the era of the Spirit in the New Testament after Jesus rose from the dead. New wineskins have been prepared for new wine and the old wineskins replaced as Jesus taught. Passover replaced by the Lord's Supper, circumcision by baptism into Jesus' name. Israel's temple curtain is torn and so their temple and synagogue in Jerusalem are replaced by the Christian Church. The Old Testament law fulfilled and superseded by a new covenant. The Spirit promised in the scriptures now not only guides us and tells us which way to live, but gives life, verse two, and sets us free, verse two, from the old law of sin and death that once bound and condemned us. Not just showing us which way to go, but empowering us to do it. And so that old reliable formula that the wages of sin is death in Romans no longer condemns us because God has done what the law could not do. The law told us we have a sin problem and death problem. God has done something about it. Point two, then, what has God done? Well, he sent Jesus to beat sin for us. Look with me at verse three. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did. How? By sending his own son. Now notice for God to send his son, we can know that the son already existed before the sending happened. God the son pre-existed Jesus the baby, in other words. God the eternal son was sent, he takes on flesh, is named Jesus. It's fully human. He faces thirst and weakness and even death. And so it can be said, verse 3, that he came in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so Easter explains Christmas. When Jesus was born, the sin offering was born. He was born to die. He took on flesh in order to pay the penalty of sin in the flesh. And so if we think all the way back to the beginning of the Bible in Genesis, Abraham was spared the sacrifice of his dear son, Isaac. And Isaac, who trusted his father and gathered the sticks for the sacrifice, was spared the blade of his father. But God the Father was not spared the innocent death of his trusting son. And the trusting son was not spared the sacrifice and the cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Can you see the lengths that the Father and the Son have gone to for us? So that it can be said, verse 3, that He condemned sin in the flesh. When God says no condemnation, David, Dot, Nick, Josh, it's not because the condemnation just disappeared or was swept under the carpet. It's because the condemnation for the sins of the flesh have been paid for in the flesh. No condemnation for us because he was condemned for us. And so for Christians, for us here tonight, we can celebrate that condemnation is a spent force. Listen to Paul explain the same thing in his other letters. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Or 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, he made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What a great exchange God makes for us. What a saviour, what kindness of the triune God who offers himself as a trinity to the world. Father sends the Son, the Son willingly goes, and the Spirit who filled and empowered the Son now lifts us into the life of the Son and to eternal life forever. The loving triune God rescues us in a very triune way involving all members of the Trinity. Point three then. Where does this all leave us? Well, it leaves us now walking righteously with the Spirit. We read at the end of verse three and into verse four, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. Who do not live according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Now remember that powerless man we heard of uh, from Andrew last week through Paul's writings. At the end of chapter 7, we read, Paul say, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. We see now as we come into chapter 8 that something has changed. The hopelessly heavy jumbo jet on the tarmac with the wind of the Spirit is miraculously lifting As St. Augustine in the 5th century AD said, the law proved itself weak because it did not accomplish what it commanded. It said be righteous, but it didn't make righteous. He continues, this was not the fault of the law, but that of the flesh, that is of men who seeking earthly possessions did not love the righteousness of the law, but preferred temporal advantages to it. Getting the here and now instead of obedience to God. That describes me. If not for the Spirit's help, I prefer temporal advantages over God's will. But I love that verse 4 is not a command. It's actually a statement of fact about us, the church. It's a description of a Christian believer. The us of verse 4 here at DPC. Those who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. God wants us to be assured of what he sees when looking at us so that we rejoice and we grow and that we fly like birds being released from that cage. When I first met my wife Ashley's grandmother, it was as though I was immediately being adopted uh, as her grandson. She was one of those people who would speak well of people everywhere. She ran an interior design business and uh, I don't think ever had a bad debt. I take it in part because she just always thought people would pay and they sensed that. I'm not sure that still works in our era, but that's what happened. And so I'd visit and she'd say, oh, David, isn't Ashley just delightful? And she'd say to Ashley, oh, Ashley, isn't David wonderful? I'm not sure it was, I felt it was true myself, but her high view of her grandchildren and her adopted in-law grandchildren no doubt felt a lifting effect from her attitude towards us whenever we were around her. She thought so highly of us, we didn't want to disappoint. And I feel the same effect from this text towards us. Let's be as God describes us to be. Those who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Let's grow, DPC, in this. Freedom from sin for righteousness is the way God describes us. How do we do this? For me, for us, I take it that's the battle, isn't it? Uh, The joyful battle, the leaving of old habits and sin behind to embrace a new way. Every week for me seems different in this. In the last week, it's been replacing material concerns for kingdom concerns. I just noticed I was too concerned by certain things. And so on my walk on Friday, I, I took this statement that I'd found and read it to myself over and over and meditated on it. You may lay up treasure, but lay it up in heaven. You may work to be rich, but work to be rich in faith. You may pursue pleasure, but when you are happy, sing psalms and make melody in your hearts to the Lord. I need to retrain the neural pathways in my brain I need to have the Spirit's way replace that way of the flesh. As the old hymn expresses it, as we go from not being Christians, we we think all of self and none of thee, God. That changes as we mature to be some of self and some of thee. And as we keep growing as Christians, it becomes none of self and all of thee, and we find our life in Him. Are we perfected yet? In status, yes, uncondemnable saints. But in daily performance, no, we're not there yet. But I must say, around our church, I see signs of this new spirit-empowered righteousness all the time. I see it in conversations I have before church, after church. I see it through the week and in church meetings. I see the character of our elders and their decisions. I see the Spirit's influence in our different team and committee meetings. I see it among our youth leaders and even among our youth, the way they look after other teenagers and even the younger kids around them. I see in our church people who are still hospitalized, unable to come to church, living according to the Spirit and not their failing flesh. Those whose flesh makes joy harder. Among those also who struggle with mental illness and yet speak of Jesus' goodness and God's grip of them when they feel their grip of him is just so weak. As a Christian, I've been privileged now to work with some of the most noble characters for the last 20 years. Much of the humanity I see in church life is humanity at its best. The righteous requirement of the law, verse 4, seems well met in them, in us, in you, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Be encouraged, 5 p.m. There's a, there's a real spirit of Christ in you. I finish them with the words of my old friend Charles Spurgeon, who lived and served and preached and wrote not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit in his time and place, just as we do today. And he did so as a person who struggled with awful episodes of depression. He writes, remember, Christian, that you are a son of the king of kings. Therefore, keep yourself unstained from the world. Do not soil the fingers that are to serve the king. Do not let your eyes become the windows of lust, eyes that will soon see the king in his beauty. Do not let your feet which are soon to walk the golden streets be defiled in dirty places. Do not allow your heart to be filled with pride and bitterness, but prepare it to be filled with heaven and to overflow with ecstatic joy. What we are dealing with here tonight, friends, is not coffee cup idealism, naive optimism, but a comprehensive transfer from one reality into another. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus, and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne, and claim the crown through Christ my own. Let's pray. Our great God, what more could you do for us and for your world than to send your Son to take on flesh, to be Emmanuel, God with us, and yet named Jesus, the Lord saves, because he will save his people from their sins. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you bore our sins upon yourself on the cross. And we rejoice that death could not hold you down, but that you were raised victorious. And that your victory now you share with all who call on you in faith. We thank you that we have nothing to fear and no one to fear. Because we are your children. Even death itself has lost its sting. And so Lord as a congregation we pray we would be those who continue to live up to that vision of us that you have. That we walk not by the flesh but by the spirit. And we ask in Jesus name. Amen.